Good evening. It is a great joy to see all of y'all here tonight. It is a great joy for me to be back uh, so we can push on with this terrific book. And as always, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for giving us this time to set aside in the midst of the press of life and all of the other things that are on our minds to be able to take a moment and to consider the things of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this great book. We thank you for the way that it points us to you, Lord Jesus, and for the deep truth that it contains about what it means to follow you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We pray that you would bless our time together tonight, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as always, uh, we're going to have a little musical quiz here, and so I'm going to play this and see if you can recognize what it is and also why it might be relevant tonight. Father's love begotten, and it is one of the great hymns of the church, and just to give you a little advance warning, uh, when it is Advent Sunday, which is what the British call the first Sunday in Advent, there's an absolutely wonderful Advent carol service that is broadcast from Trinity College, Cambridge, which has one of the great choirs of the world led by Stephen Layton. And they always sing this, and if it does not make you cry, it means you have a heart of stone. So, in which case, you can come see me for counseling. Uh, but it is, it is a wonderful thing, and it's one of the most ancient hymns that we have. Does anyone know who wrote the words to that hymn? There's no reason you should know this, by the way. That's a great guess, but no. That's a great guess, too, but no. Earlier. Oh, you're getting close. No, no, okay, y'all are, are getting to the right epoch. So it's written by a man named Aurelius Prudentius Clemens, generally known as Prudentius. And he was born in the year 348, he has a story sort of like that of St. Francis, uh, but he was uh, deeply converted to the Christian faith uh, in his late teens, early 20s. He was brilliant, and he wrote all sorts of poetry and hymns, two of which are in our hymnal, Of the Father's Love Begotten, and then also the hymn, Earth Has Many a Noble City. It was also written by him, two of the oldest hymns in Christendom. And we're going to talk about Prudentius later tonight, so you can be waiting to figure out where that's going to come in. So, let's say our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. 
Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And I would commend this verse to you to meditate on and to memorize because it is one that is particularly appropriate in these times in which we live. So now for a brief uh, commercial break, uh, just to remind you, mere Anglicanism is coming up in January. That may seem a very long way off, but let me just say that the conference is half full already. Uh, and if you are thinking about going or if you have friends who might want to go, uh, I would really encourage you to sign up. Uh, I keep trying to think of analogies about how amazing it is that all of these people are here on one stage. And I just, I don't know enough about sports to be able to come up with a good sports analogy, but I came up with a musical analogy. It would be like having Beethoven, Mozart, Debussy, Mendelssohn, all of them on the same stage, Bach, all at the same time. Um, these are literally the world leaders in scholarship about C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. And one of the things that is particularly remarkable about these men is that there are many people who are excellent scholars and can write a book that will just make you weep, it is so beautiful. And then you put them at a podium and they're Or you may have somebody who's like, wow, this is great, as I tear my mic off. Um, <laughs> and the problem with that is that you get people who are very enthusiastic but they don't know what they are talking about. And we do not have anyone that falls into either of those categories because all of these men are not only brilliant scholars and writers, but they are also people who are excellent speakers. So I commend to you this conference. There also will be lots of ways to help at this conference. Uh, so I would encourage you to Think about that. January 26th through 28th at Charleston Music Hall. Uh, there also will be two glorious worship services here, a service of festal choral evensong, and then also a festal choral Eucharist um, celebrated by the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of North America. So uh, it should be really great. So back to how to approach this class for those who are new. Uh, we are just delighted that you are here. And there are three ways you can approach this class. One, you can be on the beach. And that means you just appear when you feel like appearing. You don't do any homework. You don't read the handouts. Uh, you may be writing your grocery list during class, whatever it might be. Um, but we are delighted to have you. If that's what you want to do, that's great. Or if you want to snorkel, you can do that, where you come. And then there are certain things that you like and get interested in. 
and you can go deep in those, and then you go back to being on the beach. Totally fine. Or if you are a nerd like I am, you can be a scuba diver, and you can read everything. You can read the handouts. You can listen to the links. You can go read all the words of the song in Latin, all of those things that will bring you so much joy if you are wired like that. Uh, and I do want to just say a little word of apology. I do have two handouts for tonight, but we are having copier issues. So um, the handouts will come with the uh, email this week, and I will try to remember next week to have extras of them. The handouts are of a short story by E.M. Forster that's called The Celestial Omnibus, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, which brings me to the email list. If you are not on the email list, if you're in this room or you're listening on the live stream or the podcast, um, please do sign up because we send lots of stuff out to people in the class on that email list. Uh, if you are not at St. Philip's and would like to be on the email list, you can just Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send us a note and say you'd like to be added, and we will be delighted to do that. So uh, tonight's music we already talked about. We're going to do a quick review since it's been so many weeks since we were together. Um, this picture is of the entire population of University College Oxford when Lewis matriculated as a student. And the reason that there are so few of them is that almost everyone had gone to fight in World War I. And not many weeks after this, Lewis himself uh, volunteered and signed up for the British Army, which he did not have to do, uh, as he was a subject of Northern Ireland instead. But he did. He volunteered and went to officer's training school at Keeble College, Oxford, and on his 19th birthday was on the front line of the Battle of the Somme. Lewis was an amazing, remarkable scholar. Uh, part of what makes this particular book so good, I think, is the fact that Lewis spent most of his life as a young man as a brilliant and intellectual evangelical atheist. And he understood every excuse that people make for not following God. He understood every reason that people trot out for why they don't have faith. And in this story, he manages to unpack a lot of those and show what is wrong with them. And I think he's really the only person that could have written this book in this way. So a couple of things about why this particular book merit study today. First, there is a beautiful emphasis on the reality of eternal life. We live in a culture where more and more people don't believe there is any such thing as eternal life. They just go with the beer commercial, grab, you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can get. And that's a philosophy of life. And if you go to Upper King Street on the weekend, you'll see a lot of that uh, being lived out. But what Lewis does is he shows us that there is an eternal destiny, and that is either the awfulness of hell or the glorious beauty of heaven. And as we get into the story and you start seeing some of these descriptions of heaven, it will fire your heart with longing for what the Lord has in store for us. The second reason I think this book is so important is that in case you have not noticed it, narcissism and pride are rife in our culture today, that we are, by every measure, the most 
self-centered group of human beings that has ever inhabited planet Earth, which is sad. But what Lewis does in this book is to show the consequences of being a narcissist, and they are not pretty. And so the, the aim, of course, is to help you see that, because we all have a little, little inner narcissist in ourselves that we don't like to admit. Uh, but the more that we're aware of that, the more we can be armed against it. Thirdly, the idea of truth as an absolute is under cultural attack as never before. For most of human history, there's been an understanding that there is such a thing as truth, truth with a capital T, and that there are things, there are uh, what used to be called eternal verities, things that you can depend on. Our culture today feels like it has fallen off the axis of truth, that everything is just a matter of people's opinion. And Lewis is really focused in the story about the fact that the universe is hardwired around truth with a capital T, and that if you insist on your own truth, you can do that, but it is not going to end well. Um, the next thing that merits uh, attention is this whole obsession in our culture about rights and what we are owed. Uh, one of the things that you will know if you've spent much time reading the Gospels, or indeed, even if you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, the whole idea of self-sacrifice and servanthood is part of the bedrock of the Christian faith. And Tolkien illustrates that beautifully in the Lord of the Rings with self-sacrifice and modeling of that all over that story. But unfortunately, we are so caught up in our rights and wanting to demand our rights and looking to be offended when someone violates our rights that we, set, we spend our time in a perpetual snit. We're never happy because we never think we've gotten treated the way we deserved. And the fact of the matter is that what we, des what we deserve is perhaps not uh, what we think we deserve. Uh, we're going to see Lewis uh, delve into that in some of these letters. And so Lewis paints this idea about the beauty of servanthood and self-sacrifice and that that is where joy is to be found. The other thing that Lewis does in this book is he makes it very crystal clear that there are some situations in life that are an absolute either or, that you can't have both and and that there are things that are black and white and not just gray. And we don't like that. We like syncretism. We want to have everything all come together and think everybody really sort of believes all the same thing, and so we can all just stand around and sing Kumbaya, and it's going to be great. But the problem with that is that there are some things that are true and some things that are not. And Lewis illustrates how important this clarity is. The other thing that he does is a brilliant rebuttal of works righteousness, the idea that you can somehow be good enough to earn your way to God. Think of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He is the one who is obsessed with this idea of works righteousness. And Lewis shows that instead, the cross, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross is the central thing and the only thing that leads to our salvation. So, 
Um, in the book, one of the things we talked about about Lewis, as you study more Lewis books, hopefully this won't be the only one. I hope I won't turn you off forever. Uh, but as you study Lewis books, we're usually, as Americans, if you're like me, when you get a new book, you immediately go past all that stuff at the front to get to chapter one so you can start reading the story. Don't do that with Lewis because he always is putting things that are little clues uh, that are in the front matter of the book. The quotation on the frontispiece, what he says in the preface, all those kinds of things are hugely important as are the titles. And we talked about the fact that on the frontispiece of this book, there is a quotation from George MacDonald, uh, who was uh, the author who Lewis said baptized his imagination. And this quotation says this, no, there is no escape. There is no heaven with a little of hell in it. No place to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. Now, if you watched anything at Clemson Homecoming this week, you might have noticed that the uh, winning float had all in written on it. That's exactly what that quotation is talking about. All in, even if you're a Gamecock fan. All in. That there's not anything that you are holding back or trying to guard or keep secret. You are all in and that that is the way that you experience the joy of following Christ. Uh, another thing that we talked about a little bit last time, and we're going to unpack more when we get further into the book, is that there are several things going on in Lewis's life in terms of his other writing and lecturing that are having a huge impact. Lewis was always writing and lecturing, and it's amazing how many things he would be working on at the same time. And during the time period that he was writing The Great Divorce, he was kind of dealing with devils and hell. That was kind of, doesn't sound like much fun, does it? Uh, but that was, that was what he was writing about. So he did some uh, very significant lectures on John Milton and Paradise Lost. And uh, you might have heard in the uh, homily, if you were at the service, about Milton's quotation, better to uh, rule in hell uh, than to serve in heaven. And Lewis is going to bring that quotation right into this book later. But Lewis wrote a brilliant book that's on the table over there that I'd encourage you to thumb through at least that's called A Preface to Paradise Lost. Now, if you're like me, you were forced to slog through Paradise Lost when you were in ninth grade, and you, it probably did not change your life. Uh, but I would encourage you, if you've gotten over the trauma of that, uh, to pick it up again and to try to reread it, and reread it with Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost as a companion. And it will come alive for you in a way that is absolutely beautiful. Meanwhile, Lewis is also writing the screw tape letters uh, about how the devil wants to try to tempt believers. And in addition to writing and publishing those, Lewis and his close friends Charles Williams and Dorothy Sayers were in a big dialogue about Dante's Divine Comedy, um, particularly the Inferno. And most of us have not read Dante now, but that is also something that I would encourage you, if you're really brave, um, to do that, because it is beautiful. Uh, it will enrich your life. So uh, Dante and the whole idea of the way the Inferno is set up 
has a huge influence on the structure of the great divorce. So we're going to talk more about that later. So we talked last time about the preface. If you haven't read the preface, uh, no shame, no shame. Uh, but please read the preface. Even if you're on the beach, I don't usually say this, but even if you're on the beach, please read the preface. It's really short. It's only maybe two pages. You can do it. It won't hurt you. In between your drinks on the beach, it'll be just fine. But it will bless you if you read it. But there are several themes in this preface that are really important. The first one is this idea that you cannot have it all. And our culture tells us that all the time, particularly if you're a young person just starting off in the world, you can have it all. You can have the most amazing, fulfilling job that is going to change the world and solve climate change and bless poor children in Africa and give you a seven-figure salary and you can have eight homes and it's all possible by the time you're 25. You know, th these kinds of things that are just out in our culture are crazy. Or you can be the woman that breaks the glass ceiling and becomes the CEO of the company with 40,000 employees in 20 countries. And you can have six children and homeschool all of them. And you can just do all of that, and it's going to be great. But the problem is, it's not true. You can't do all of that. And the sooner we realize that and make the hard choices and seek the calling God has on our life, the better. The second thing, deeply related to that, choices matter. And you may be recalled to renounce things on the journey. And there's this great quotation that's part of what inspired the U2 song, All You Can't Leave Behind, uh, and the song Walk On. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. We are not living in a world where all worlds are radii of a circle, and where all have followed long enough will therefore gradually draw nearer and finally to meet at the center. The third thing, repentance and a new start are prerequisites for the journey. This is just not the idea of, oh, I can just add this thing on to everything else I already believe and just have one more little cool thing that I think about and then it's all going to be great. No, Lewis is going to make it very clear that if we are really going to be on this journey that leads to joy and following Jesus, that we have to turn around, which is very humiliating. I shared the story of when I was driving down the interstate uh, trying to get to Winston-Salem, and I kept seeing signs that showed the mileage to Raleigh was getting less and less. And I finally had to admit that I was driving away from my destination. And I had, it was terrible because my children who were young at the time were pointing out to me that the mileage was going the wrong way. So I had to get off the interstate, go over the ramp and go back and we got there an hour later because of that. But the best thing, if I hadn't turned around, we would have ended up at the Outer Banks. So it's important to realize when you're going in the wrong direction and turn around. Fourthly, anything that we leave behind will pale in the face of what God has in store for us. And there's that beautiful quotation from Lewis elsewhere where he says that we are far too easily pleased. We fool around with things like drink and sex and think that we will find joy there. And he says we are like children 
in a slum content to be playing with mud pies because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seashore. And I think that is so true of us. Our imaginations are impoverished about the joy and beauty of heaven. The fifth thing that Lewis hammers on uh, is that this is a fantasy and a supposal. It is not a factual description of the afterlife. And I cannot tell you how many scholarly essays there are about the great divorce where people all of a sudden start trying to build uh, an eschatological, theological tome on what Lewis is talking about here. And he says in the preface right there, don't do that. Don't do it. Um, he's not trying to teach us about that. He's trying to teach us about our hearts. So moving into chapter one, and I just have to say thank you to C.S. Lewis because if you're coming back from an eye injury, it is wonderful to have such a short first chapter to come back to for a class. So since it's so short, we're going to read the whole thing tonight. So if you didn't read it before, this is your lucky day because you're going to hear it all tonight. And uh, I hope I won't put you to sleep. Uh, you can follow along on the screen. Chapter one. I seem to be standing in a bus queue by the side of a long, mean street. Evening was just closing in, and it was raining. I'd been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain and always in evening twilight. Time seemed to have paused on that dismal moment when only a few shops have lit up, and it is not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. And just as the evening never advanced to night, so my walking had never brought me to the better parts of the town. However far I went, I found only dingy lodging houses, small tobacconists, hoardings from which posters hung in rags, windowless warehouses, goods stations without trains, and bookshops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. I never met anyone, but for the little crowd at the bus stop, the whole town seemed to be empty. I think that was why I attached myself to the queue. A queue is a line, in case you didn't know. So he's in the line at the bus stop. I had a stroke of luck right away, for just as I took my stand, a little waspish woman who would have been ahead of me snapped out at a man who seemed to be with her. Very well then, I won't go at all. So there, and left the queue. Pray don't imagine, said the man in a very dignified voice, that I care about going in the least. I have only been trying to please you, for peace sake. My own feelings are, of course, a matter of no importance. I quite understand that. And suiting the action to the word, he also walked away. Come, thought I, that's two places gained. I was now next to a very short man with a scowl, who glanced at me with an expression of extreme disfavor and observed rather unnecessarily loudly to the man beyond him, this sort of thing really makes one think twice about going at all. What sort of thing, growled the other, a big beefy person. Well, said the short man, this is hardly the sort of society I'm used to, as a matter of fact. Ha, huh, said the big man, and then added with a glance at me, don't you stand any sauce from him, mister. You're not afraid of him, are you? Then seeing I made no move, he rounded suddenly on the short man and said, not good enough for you, aren't we? Like your lip. Next moment, he had fetched the short man one on the side of the face that sent him sprawling into the gutter. 
Let him lay, let him lay, said the big man, to no one in particular. I'm a plain man, that's what I am, and I gotta have my rights, same as anyone else. See, as the short man showed no disposition to rejoin the queue, and soon began limping away, I closed up rather cautiously behind the big man and congratulated myself on having gained yet another step. A moment later, two young people in front of him also left us arm in arm. They were both so trousered, slender, giggly, and falsetto that I could be sure of the sex of neither, but it was clear that each for the moment preferred the other to the chance of a place in the bus. We shall never all get in, said a female voice with a whine in it from some four places ahead of me. Change places with you for five bob, lady, said someone else. I heard the clink of money and then a scream in the female voice mixed with roars of laughter from the rest of the crowd. The cheated woman leaped out of her place to fly at the man who had belked her, but the others immediately closed up and flung her out. So, what with one thing and another, the queue had reduced itself to manageable proportions long before the bus appeared. It was a wonderful vehicle, blazing with golden light, heraldically colored. The driver himself seemed full of light, and he used only one hand to drive with. The other he waved before his face as if to fan away the greasy steam of the rain. A growl went up from the queue as he came in sight. Looks as if he had a good time of it, eh? Bloody pleased with himself, I bet. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us. Who does he imagine he is? All that gilding and purple, I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of that money on their house property down here? God, I'd like to give him one in the ear hole. I could see nothing in the countenance of the driver to justify all this, unless it were that he had a look of authority and seemed intent on carrying out his job. My fellow passengers fought like hens to get on board the bus, though there was plenty of room for us all. I was the last to get in. The bus was only half full, and I selected a seat at the back well away from the others. But a tousle-headed youth at once came and sat down beside me. As he did so, we moved off. I thought you wouldn't mind my tacking on to you, he said, for I've noticed that you feel just as I do about the present company. Why on earth they insist on coming, I can't imagine. They won't like it at all when we get there, and they'd really be much more comfortable at home. It's different for you and me. Do they like this place, I asked. As much as they'd like anything, he answered. They've got cinemas and fish and chip shops and advertisements and all the sorts of things they want. The appalling lack of any intellectual life doesn't worry them. I realized as soon as I got here that there'd been some mistake. I ought to have taken the first bus, but I fooled about trying to wake people up here. I found a few fellows I'd known before and tried to form a little circle, but they all seemed to have sunk to the level of their surroundings. Even before we came here, I'd had some doubts about a man like Cyril Blello. I've always thought he was working in a false idiom, but he was at least intelligent. One could get some criticism worth hearing from him, even if he was a failure on the creative side. But now he seems to have nothing left but his self-conceit. The last time I tried to read him some of my own stuff, but wait a minute, I'd just like you to look at it, realizing with a shudder that what he was producing from his pocket was a thick wad of typewritten paper, I muttered something about not having my spectacles and exclaimed, hello, we've left the ground. 
It was true. Several hundred feet below us, already half hidden in the rain and mist, the wet roofs of the town appeared, spreading without break as far as the eye could see. So that is the end of chapter one. And I want to just point out a couple of things about this. You may not realize this, but this is a brilliant first chapter. There is so much that is not said. There is so much that is not said that it works up all of your curiosity. And this is classic Lewis. Lewis loves to put the bait out there to hook you. Um, how many of you have ever heard of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? All right, if you haven't read that, please read that sometime. Does anyone remember in what order the things in the story appear? The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Which comes first? The wardrobe. Which comes second? The witch. Which comes last? The lion. Well, if you read this to a child, they will always say, where's the lion? When's the lion coming? And it, it intrigues them. And that's part of what Lewis is doing here. We have no idea where this is. We don't know who the narrator is. We don't know who these people on the bus are. We, there's just a lot that we don't know. And that is very deliberate on Lewis's part. It is to make you curious. And there are also some other things that are very interesting uh, that he does here. And we're going to try to unpack some of them tonight. So these are just some observations uh, that we can glean out of this chapter. So the first thing is that although we're not told where they are in the story, we do get some descriptors of what it's like there. Uh, it is raining. It is dreary, endless, mean, dismal, dingy, empty, is that where you'd like to sign up to go for your next vacation? Uh, it does not sound like a very appealing place. Uh, there's a lot in there about that it doesn't ever quite seem to get dark, but it's not really light either. Everything is sort of in between. It's empty, and no matter how far you walk, you never get to a good part of town. It's all just the same. Then there's this description of the people who he encounters at the bus stop. And that is very interesting also when you look at some of the words uh, that you could use or interpret. So one of the things you see is there's a mix of social classes at the bus stop. Remember, this is England in the 1940s. There's still a pretty hierarchical social class system. So we've got people, you can tell by their language that they're from different um, levels of society. Uh, and then look at some of the adjectives that we see. Waspish, scowling, loud, complaining, disfavoring, argumentative, violent, whining, cheating, bullying, excluding, fighting. Sounds great. Just the kind of people you'd love to have for your friends, right? or if you were going on a trip to another country to have this group be with you or not. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that not one of the people is described in a positive way 
except for the driver. All the rest of them are complaining and looking to be offended, touchy, um, nasty, mean, all of that. And some scholars, I think this is a bridge too far, but it's not terribly too far. Um, some scholars will do an analysis of this first chapter and say we've got envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, sloth, and wrath all there. And I think there is certainly an element of that. There, there are elements of all these behaviors. And remember the seven deadly sins, uh, if you were in Screwtape class or in Mere Christianity class, uh, we talked about the seven deadly sins. Uh, that's not something that you hear very much about anymore. Uh, I have not seen uh, a sign in front of a church lately that says sermon series, the seven deadly sins. Uh, that's not a hot seller uh, in our culture right now. But Lewis believed that there, the church was on to something, not that these are the only sins by any stretch of the imagination, but these are things um, where self-examination is important. And remember, Lewis is such a medievalist, and he believed that the emphasis on self-examination in the Middle Ages that led to repentance um, was a very healthy thing for Christians. And that as we've moved away from an understanding not only of the seven deadly sins, but of sin at all, and just wanted to affirm everyone that we've lost something uh, that was uh, of, of significant loss in our faith. The other thing that's interesting is to look at the contrast between the description of all these people and then the description of the bus driver and the bus. It is absolutely opposite. So the bus and the driver are described with these words, wonderful, blazing, full of light, colorful, plenty of room, and then the driver is authoritative, responsible, focused. And not only that, the bus can fly. That's pretty cool. I mean, most people sitting around in Oxford in World War II are not really thinking about flying buses. Uh, but Lewis has put a flying bus right into the middle of this very strange neighborhood that we've been hearing about. And then we get descriptions of why some people are leaving the queue. Um, the husband and wife who are arguing. Uh, the short man who gets punched. Um, the trousered, self-absorbed couple, and the cheated woman. And we could, we could spend a long time talking about all of those uh, because these are all situations where someone has taken offense for one reason or another, uh, with the possible exception of the couple who are just completely absorbed in one another. But all the other people have taken offense. And Part of the reason that that's important is we live in a culture where people are quick to take offense, very quick to take offense. And it's so interesting because if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, um, probably the most popular passage to be read at weddings uh, that talks about love. And it says, love is patient, love is kind, and it goes on and makes all these descriptions about love. And it's interesting because they're all things that are action-oriented. They're not emotive kind of things. They are action-oriented. But one of the things in that list of what love is, what Christian love is, 
is love believes the best. Love is not easily offended. And this is one of the areas where if Christians get this, we will stand out, as Philippians says, we will shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Because if we believe the best, if we are not quick to take offense, if we love in that proactive way, it's so different from what's in the culture that it will make people stand up and take notice. And then the last person we encounter, and you have to kind of feel sorry for Lewis. Here he's finally made it on the bus, and he thinks, oh, I'm going to have a few moments peace. And he goes and he sits all the way in the back of the bus and thinks he's going to be fine. And then he sees this guy coming down the aisle right toward him and knows there's no one else back there that he could be going to sit with. And Lewis is showing, uh, well, we're going to learn Lewis is the narrator. And basically what he's doing is he's showing us one of his own faults that he doesn't like to be interfered with. And so the last thing he wants is to have to talk to this kid poet who is showing up and wanting to read him his adolescent poetry. And the interesting thing about this is that I think all of us have been in that situation where you're sitting somewhere and you think, oh no, um, here comes this person. I thought I was going to get work done or be able to listen or whatever it might be. And it reminds me of one of the great scenes in modern American cinema, I think, is in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, which is a great movie, um, not particularly Christian, but it has some great moments and some great lines in it. And it's about this kid who's playing hooky and this obsessive principal who is determined to catch the kid. And so all sorts of misadventures happen. But the principal has had really a bad day. He's been drugged through the mud. He's been attacked by dogs. Um, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, and he never caught Ferris. And the only way he can get back to his school is to have to ride one of his own school's school buses back. And so he gets on the bus, and there's only one seat left next to this kind of nerdy-looking girl, and he decides he's going to have to go and sit there. And you can tell he's just horribly uncomfortable. And this girl is so sweet in her own way, but um, really upsetting um, to him and his sense of his grandeur. Because he sits down, and then she looks at him, and she says, would you like some gummy bears? They're warm. They've been in my pocket all day. <laughs> and you can tell that was just the end. That, was, that, was, that made what had been an awful day hit the nadir of what it, what it could be. So Lewis, Lewis is telling us that that's how he's feeling when this tousle-headed youth comes and sits down. And it's interesting because you see the youth assumes this in, instant intimacy um, with the narrator based on the way he looks. He says, I could tell we're the same kind of person. He hasn't said a word to him. He's just looked at him. Uh, and then he starts sharing all this information about himself. Um, he thinks he's in the wrong place. We learned there's been more than one bus, um, that these people are comfortable where they are. They're, they like it as much as they're capable of liking anything. Um, that this guy thinks there's no intellectual life. He's been trying to wake up his peers. 
Um, he's probably not a fan of, uh, Lewis makes up these author names sometimes, and I think this is, this is a takeoff on Saul Bellow. Um, we'll talk more about Saul Bellow later, uh, but Lewis had no use for Saul Bellow. Uh, didn't like his pretentious writing, didn't like the fact that he was a communist uh, in his early years, all these things. So that's a little bit of what's going on there. Um, and we learned that this guy is a writer of some sort. And we're going to learn a lot more about him in the next chapter. But we're given just enough to make us curious and to feel a little bit, a little bit sorry for Lewis that he's on this bus ride that who knows how long it will be, and the guy's got a thick sheaf of manuscript that he's just dying to read out loud. What fun. So, um, a couple of things going on here that we are getting the first hints of, of some of Lewis's likely inspirations. So the first is the idea of the refrigerium, which is uh, not an easy word to say. Um, this is a fairly obscure theological, uh, not really doctrine, theological supposal. And if, when we get to chapter 9, we'll see this. George MacDonald actually shows up in the book um, in chapter 9, and he's speaking to Lewis, the narrator, and he says, did you never hear of the refrigerium? I wish I could do a Scottish accent. A man with your advantages might have read of it in Prudentius. Oh, look, there's Prudentius, the man that wrote the hymn that we talked about, not to mention Jeremy Taylor. So Prudentius, an early Roman Christian poet, the author of Of the Father's Love Begotten, Earth Has Many a Noble City. Lewis knew his work well. It was all in Latin, but since Lewis was fluent in Latin, Lewis had read pretty much all of it. And he talks about um, the refrigerium. And it was popularized a little bit in the 17th century by Jeremy Taylor, uh, who was an Anglican priest who gave a sermon in 1650 called Christ Advent to Judgment. Um, that talks about this idea of the refrigerium mentioned by Prudentius. And the idea is that the damned are occasionally given repose from the torments of hell by being granted days off in other places. Now, let me hasten to add there's no scriptural warrant for this, but it derives a little bit from the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and Father Abraham, and that Father Abraham is in heaven with Lazarus in his bosom, and the rich man, who's traditionally called Dives, is in hell, and, and they can see each other. They can see each other, that Dives in hell can see Father Abraham and Lazarus, and he asks Father Abraham to send Lazarus down to cool his thirst. So that's where the idea begins to come from, the idea that there's sort of a display effect that you can see uh, literally one from the other. So Lewis is going to play with that. And the handout that you don't have tonight is the other uh, inspiration that likely affected Lewis. Uh, many of you have heard of E.M. Forster. Um, he uh, was a very popular British author in the early 20th century. Uh, there's a famous movie uh, a while back called A Room with a View. Uh, that was written uh, based on a Forster story, A Passage to India, is by Forster. Um, he was very well known, and Lewis would certainly have read his work. And one of his short stories is called The Celestial Omnibus. 
which is kind of a tongue twister. Uh, but the story is fascinating, and I commend it to you if you're snorkeling or scuba diving. Uh, and it will be in the email. But it's about a boy, and he is uh, a boy who has a strong sense of wonder. And so he lives in this English village, and he's out sort of puttering around one day, and he sees this sign, an old sign at a bus stop, um, that the paint's peeling off of a little bit, but you can still make out the lettering that says, to heaven. And he's intrigued by this idea. And he goes home so excited to tell his mom and dad, the bus stop, there's a sign that says, to heaven. Maybe there's a bus that goes to heaven. And his parents, who are the worst kind of pseudo-intellectuals, um, and their friends who are all over there drinking, just mock this boy mercilessly and point at him and laugh out loud and tell him how stupid he is for believing that there's a bus to heaven or there's a heaven or anything like that at all. But the boy, despite this, is reinforced in his belief that there's something to this. And he decides he's going to go out and he, he learns as he sees some other faded signs that the service has been reduced and it only is at sunrise and at sunset. And so he's determined that he's going to sneak out of the house and go. And he does. And when he goes there, there is an omnibus. But this is a different kind. This is not like Lewis's bus here. This is a horse and carriage with four horses. And he's invited onto the bus, uh, the carriage. And they take off. And it goes up into the sky. And it rides over the rainbow, the rainbow which is solid, which is interesting when we get later in this book, um, and ends up in heaven where this boy is given a glimpse of heaven. And he comes back and tells his parents, and they're all like, you are the worst. I mean, it's just so terrible. Um, and they have this one really snobbish friend who I think is a school teacher or headmaster or something like that, who decides to go with the boy um, to see it just to taunt him. But when he goes, there's another bus there, but this one's going in the opposite direction, shall we say. And um, they get on the bus, and this pseudo-intellectual teacher guy is terrified, and there's this big Latin quotation on the omnibus that, that comes up that uh, in Latin, when you're reading the Inferno, as you enter into hell, um, in Latin there's the inscription, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. But what Forster does in the story is it says, abandon self-importance, all ye who enter here. Abandon pride. And so it is uh, very interesting, clearly something that Lewis had floating around in his head as he's starting to write this story. So, um, just two themes tonight that I want us to focus on. The first one is that bad choices can have lasting consequences. All these people have ended up in whatever this place is. We're not sure yet. We might guess. But they've ended up in this place, and they can't get out unless they take this bus. And so, we hear this from the poet. He says, I ought to have taken that first bus but I fooled about trying to wake people up here. I found a few fellows I'd known before and tried to form a little circle, but they all seemed to have sunk 
to the level of their surroundings. And this is the idea that choices really matter. We don't like to believe that. We always want to think that we can choose and it's all going to be fine and we can do this thing that we know we shouldn't do, but it's all going to be fine. But that's not what scripture tells us. So listen to these passages from James. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then from Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty direct. And then the opposite, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And it's really interesting to contrast those two lists from Galatians and to think about what list describes our culture, what list describes our life, um, which list is better. I think most of us obviously would say love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But we need to realize that those are fruit of the Spirit. And there's a whole, I'm not going to preach a sermon, I promise, but there's, there's a whole thing about how fruit grows. Fruit doesn't just magically pop onto a tree. Um, there is cultivation. There's fertilizer. Um, there's the right environment. All of those kinds of things that are equally important in our spiritual life. And the second thing that you see so clearly in this first chapter that Lewis is going to build on is that the children of darkness disdain the children of light, that they are not predisposed to love the children of light. Look at this little excerpt about as soon as they see the bus and the driver, whom they've never met, they don't know anything about. A growl went up from the queue as he came in sight. Look as if he had a good time of it, eh? Bloody pleased with himself, I bet. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us. Who does he imagine he is? All that gilding and purple. I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of the money on their house property down here? God, I'd like to give him one in the ear hole. Well, that's pretty mean. They've never met this guy. They know nothing about him, but they've completely judged him and written him off and are saying all these terrible things about him and that they'd like to punch him out. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by that. We live in a culture where we think everybody's just nice. Everyone's nice. But we learned in the last book, uh, That Hideous Strength, about the nice. Uh, nice is not always what it appears to be. And part of what Lewis is trying to get at here is that we shouldn't expect that those who are deeply committed to the things of this world are going to welcome and be really friendly toward people who are people of the Christian faith. Uh, we should be prepared to love them despite the fact that they are going to be unloving. 
And there's a beautiful passage about this that's in 2 Corinthians. And I chose, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the J.B. Phillips um, paraphrase uh, slash translation of the New Testament. But it's really good. It's very insightful. And uh, J.B. Phillips was a huge Lewis admirer, and there's a whole really cool story about that that I won't go into. But listen to this passage in the Phillips version. Don't link up with unbelievers and try to work with them. What common interest can there be between goodness and evil? How can light and darkness share life together? How can there be harmony between Christ and the devil? What business can a believer have with an unbeliever? What common ground can idols hold with the temple of God? For we, remember, are ourselves living temples of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now let me hasten to add, this does not mean that we should not be loving and kind to people who are not believers, but it does mean that we need to be on our guard and not be gullible. Um, You see Jesus with all kinds of unbelievers to whom he is compassionate and loving, but he also knows who he is and where the boundaries are. Um, The second passage is from John chapter 3 that was in Rector's Forum on Sunday morning. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And I want to just unpack that last point for a minute because I think this is so important when we live in a culture where um, the Christian faith is not in the majority. We live in a culture where there is a lot of darkness. But as that verse that I quoted from Philippians earlier says, that when we do everything without grumbling or complaining, we shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as we hold out the word of life. And there is no one else in our culture that has the word of life except for people who belong to Jesus Christ. And that word of life that we have is a treasure, but so often we hide it under a bushel. Not just the bushel of being afraid to talk about it, but the bushel of complaining and arguing and acting just like everyone else in such a way that that light cannot shine. Jesus himself said that we are to do good works so that men will see them and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And part of the the thing that we need to learn is that practicing our faith doesn't mean just within the household of God. It means that that fruit of the Spirit should be evident in our lives in such a way that it draws people to us. And we need to be praying for God to develop that light in us, that light that shines out through us because Jesus lives within us. So I want to close with this little quotation uh, again from The Great Divorce, and I want to unpack it a little bit before I close this in prayer. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find out that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking 
even his most depraved wishes will be there beyond expectation waiting for him in the high countries. And the reason I want to unpack this is somebody asked me a really good question after the last class because they said, does that mean that if you want something that's bad and you were seeking something that was depraved, that you're going to find it in heaven? Well, that is not what it means. Uh, what it means is that we are all made in the image of God. We are made beautifully in the image of God, but we are scarred because of original sin. And what that means is that our desires have gone off in directions that they shouldn't have gone in, that we want things in ways that are not the way God wanted us to have them. And what this verse is talking about is that all the crooked will be made straight. So that the person, for example, who um, is addicted to pornography because they're lonely and seeking love, that that desire of wanting love and to be in relationship, that's a good desire that comes from God. And that good desire will be clarified and purified and met in a way that is beyond all of our expect expectation and longing in heaven. That's what he's talking about here. And that is a glorious thing to look forward to. So with that, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this first chapter of this amazing book. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of this dark and gray and um, not very friendly land that Lewis describes, we see this beautiful, light-filled bus and driver come in to offer people an opportunity to escape. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand the light and the beauty and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would cling to them the light that shines in the darkness that the darkness will not overcome. Lord, we thank you for this time together tonight. I thank you for each person listening and pray your blessing on them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So before you go home, please try to meet someone that you had not met before tonight, and I will look forward to seeing you next week back here.